Hello. Hello. I'm Grace. And I'm Madeline. And we're Dragon Babies. Dragon Babies. We reread our favorite YA fantasy classics and discuss why they may be even better for adults. Yes. This week, The Lost Years of Merlin by T.A. Barron. Now also known as Merlin Book One, colon, The Lost Years. Yeah. <laughs> Just to be confusing. <laughs> I understand why these decisions are made, but yeah. every time we cover a book whose name has changed, it's just it's just a real struggle for me personally. Yeah. yeah. And I keep getting confused and thinking it's a different book. But that's a problem for my personal time, not pod time. This book was published in 1996. It is the first of five books that are contained in the Merlin saga. And it is one that we did read mm-hmm. often as children. Yep. I read more books in the saga. I think that you did too. We had quite a few of them, if not all. Yeah, I didn't... This one I didn't read very much. I think I read once when he was older. Mm -hmm. Um, But going back to it was a real joy. This book feels like a therapeutic exercise Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. And I highly recommend it. It's pretty widely available. There's an ebook, an audio book, or you can find it at your local library. Mm -hmm. Before we get into the book, let's talk about how the publisher chose to package and promote our edition. We have this somewhere, either in your books or my books. I know that it's resurfaced, but I... I just moved back to Seattle, and my life is in shambles right now, so I can't find anything. Covered in cats. <laughs> Literally, there are six cats living in our house right now. Um, <laughs> we should have some kind of webcams. <laughs> but anyway, this cover, I believe, is one of the earlier editions. It was a hardcover that we had, and it is a beautiful painting of Emrys with trouble on his shoulder. He's gripping his staff, which is way more beautiful than it had to be. Um, Yeah. Of course, it was, you know, supernaturally formed by a thinking tree. Yeah, so, I mean, I guess it makes sense if it's beautiful. (laughs) It's not your average. I found this staff hiking as a kid and then, you know, forced my camp counselor to let me... (laughs) Drag it all the way back to the cabin and on the bus. I mean, we I did that once on, like, a four-day trip. um, And every day it would be like, oh, my God, Grace, don't forget your staff. (laughs) Don't forget your stick. (laughs) And once I did leave it at a rest stop and I ran back, like, half a mile to get it. Amazing. (laughs) Anyway... Emrys has his pendant hanging around his neck, the Galator. He has on rough-hewn brown clothing and is gazing off into what must be the sunset because there are orange rays falling on his face, Mm. a cute little close-cropped head of hair. And at this point, I, I think we're meant to see that he's not really looking with his eyes because he is blind Mm -hmm. and he's using his second sight to see. And then there's a sort of misty mountain and a little tree in the background. So I think of this as him looking down on Finkyra. I adore this cover. Usually a cover like this, I wouldn't necessarily be super excited about because it's a little boy instead of a little girl. I'm I'm looking at this through like Like as a 10-year-old Grace's Mm -hmm. eyes. But... 
The Lost Years of Merlin is so enticing as a title. And then Trouble. Trouble really pulls it all together. Yeah. And Emrys is wearing a pretty necklace. And it also doesn't true. take much more than that. And has the staff, which I just like hyper fixated on. So. It's a really cool necklace. I would like a massive, mm-hmm. like glowing green yeah, you would stone pendant. A necklace like that for sure. To the Etsy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> That's absolutely right. I'm sure it's out there. And Trouble is so dynamic, too. You can sense his mischief and personality. I love the way his wings are outspread. And his little beak is open. It's really, really <laughs> cute. And just just around, all around, perfect. It's an exceptional cover. Yeah. This is also one where the artist clearly paid attention to the details of the accessories and the plot and mm-hmm. the characters and everything's just really shining through. Yeah. I, you know, unsurprisingly don't love the new cover. Um, we'll put both of these on our website, dragonbabiespodcast.com. It falls prey to the sort of like weird um, art graphic symbol combination with like a stock photo of a man in the background um it's in your it's in your text no i'm looking at it i i didn't notice the man who's way too old looking he's really old on the on our cover is the age that he's supposed to be because he's pretty much a kid when this like 12 or 13 right yeah because they talk about things that happen in his 12th year or that Mm -hmm. will happen in his 12th year um, and that's just a straight up man clutching a staff that is way less pretty and appropriate than the first staff. So, yeah, I mean, no surprise. You all know we don't like this style of cover. It's yeah. really popular now. And also part of the reason we don't like it is probably that it's meant for a group of young readers that were informed by a different aesthetic and period of time. Um, whereas we're like, please make a very detailed painting. Yeah. <laughs> that's what I would prefer. <laughs> Not clip art, thank you. <laughs> yeah, it just it just doesn't excite me. And I don't think it captures anything about the book either. It looks like a totally different, yeah. I don't know, like a Stephen King book or something like that. It must sell well because I can't. I assume. Be, no, I yeah, assume like so. That it's must a very be why everyone's style. doing it. And like, I think, you know, the young readers of today want, like, these brighter, glossier, like, and just, like, a glossier finish and things that look kind of, like, CGI. Um, Fine. Our eight-year-old sister is obsessed with the movie Z.O.M.B.I.E.S. And if any of you have experienced it, I feel like it's in a similar vein as this cover. Madeline will provide a wonderful plot summary for those who haven't read the book before or haven't visited it in a while. I will just a little prologue. The book is very ambly in its plot um it kind of like mooshes from place to place at times um so we'll do our best to summarize but we might miss some stuff yeah it's interesting because i think it's more about the journey than the actual like the variety of destinations that emrys arrives at yeah um and uh, and at the same time, I feel like it's a pretty straightforward hero's journey. In the larger structure, for mm-hmm. sure. Yeah. 
But in terms of like how he decides where he's going and then how he gets there, there's lots of um, being knocked unconscious. Yes, a staple of, for young Madeline when I was writing. <laughs> waking up somewhere new and having arrived at the place that they were trying to get to. Um, but I don't care. I mean, I yeah, wasn't no. bothered by it. No, I really wasn't. I, I st- the writing is really lovely. And I don't mind some plot contrivances when it's supported by, like, these really delightful characters, beautiful writing, mm-hmm. all of this woven in folklore from a wide range of different yeah. traditions. And the settings and, like, the descriptions of the natural world the are so cool. The nature is really, really compelling. Yeah. And we'll talk more about T.A. Barron and why he's so talented at writing about nature later. But first, Madeline, take us away. So at the very beginning of the book, a young boy who we will find out his name is Emrys is the name that his mother Bronwyn gives him. Uh, He washes up on a beach and he has no memory of who he is or how he got there. There's a beautiful woman with long blonde hair also washed up on the beach and uh, he's kind of (laughs) freaking out. And as he's going towards the woman, he gets menaced by a boar, like a huge, scary boar that seems like it's some kind of evil force. And it charges Imris. Uh, he can't he can't fend it off. He's like a little child and he doesn't know what's going on. He's small and weak from the like near drowning, but a stag comes out of the woods and uh, fights the boar. The boar retreats, leaves him alone, and then the woman wakes up, having missed the epic battle. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we find out that the woman is, she tells Emrys that she's his mother, that her name is Bronwyn, and his name is Emrys. And then we kind of jump forward in time about like six or seven years, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe five or six. One thing I want to add, interestingly, throughout, we're getting from Emerus's perspective that he doesn't believe that those are their names mm-hmm. and that he doesn't really feel that she's his mother. Yeah, he has. A, He's right about one of those things, <laughs> wrong about the other. <laughs> yeah, he has a very strong feeling that since Bronwyn won't tell him more mm-hmm about his past and won't give him any other information about his father yeah that she must not be his mother um one because he's angry at her about that and two that he believes that well if she won't tell me it's because she's hiding something from me she's Mm -hmm. lying she's not really my mother he just has all of this uncertainty around it so they settle into a village um, it's a early, early medieval village in Wales. In yeah, in Wales, and uh, so there's lots of talk about magic and lots of vestiges of like 
uh, Gallic and mm-hmm. Celtic and Welsh magic. But now Christianity but is they're getting colonized. the name of the game. Yeah. There's persecution of both um, people practicing pagan traditions and worshiping pagan gods and also Jewish people. Yeah. Yeah. There's some... The very upsetting anti-Semitic Hardcore scene. anti-Semitism that yeah. kind of comes out of left field, but it yeah. makes sense for the setting. Historically. Yeah. I mean, we're in like the late 5th century at this okay. point. Yeah, long, long time ago, because they talk a lot about the Romans. Um, so it it gives like that sense of like they weren't that long ago. Yeah. And at this point in time, this was, I have some historical context we can get into later. Woohoo. But as <laughs> I right love now, historical context, <laughs> followed by Madeline's Law Corner. No, <laughs> just kidding. Madeline's Law Corner can be very instructive and helpful. <laughs> Inappropriate. Justice. Everyone loves lawyers. <laughs> The Romans had just recently ceased their annexation of Great Britain prior to the events of this book. So at this point, the different groups like the Anglos, the Saxons, the Celts and Britons, the Jutes, all those guys, Mm -hmm. they're all beginning to kind of have tension and war for different areas of land. And then also other Germanic tribes are also Mm -hmm. like, they're not protected by the Romans anymore, so we're going to try to get in there. So it's a big old mess. It's a mess. One one colonialism force is fading, and there's a vacuum that mm-hmm. another is like coming in to replace. And yeah, because one of the boys in the village believes that his father was a Roman soldier. Yeah, which also like threw me. I was like, and Whoa. and doesn't Merlin say like he was a Saxon pig? Yeah, and he's like, how could you? <laughs> <laughs> like, what a read. <laughs> and he, and it becomes clear in that moment that Merlin like used his powers accidentally to like uncover the truth of this boy's unknown father. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Who is a bully? Yeah. No, he's horrible. I mean, he tries to kill his mother. Yeah. So in, in the Inciting village. event. <laughs> yeah. In the village, uh, Bronwyn is acting as like a healer woman, like a hedge witch, uh, kind of capacity and uh, all of the villagers continue to come and get her cures uh, but they also all talk about her behind her back yeah. um, at, like a witch and a sorceress and like she's evil and all this stuff and then they still she's go to evil her evil unless she's helping me me directly in this moment <laughs> otherwise bad um, and it Bronwyn is actually very interested in a lot of different uh, belief systems. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I should say like religious and magical. Yeah. Because she uses magical methods in her healing mm-hmm. and she talks about in her stories a lot of different kinds of magic from different cultures yeah. and histories. And she's also really into Jesus. <laughs> She loves Jesus. <laughs> she loves Jesus. It's so <laughs> jarring, but I liked it. It's just weird that there are moments in this book where Emrys goes so quickly from yeah, thinking about these pagan traditions and mm-hmm. folk tales to them like, and mother always told me like just trust in the one God. And yeah. I was like, what's happening? <laughs> I and I kind of really like like it was jarring at first. But it's cool because it makes it feel more real. Like exactly, it's really rooted. Like there is really mm-hmm. this magic, and there's this magical land called Finkyra, yeah. and like yeah, and Jesus is around, and the Romans and, and Jewish people. <laughs> 
and thinking about the vestiges of old religions that the new colonizers or oppressors or whatever mm-hmm. group is in power are trying to stamp out. And I feel like this book with their right icons. and replace with with whatever their new yeah. religion is. Um, mm-hmm. This book helped me just really live in that and consider, yeah, just how challenging it is to suddenly force everyone to leave their beliefs behind. Mm-hmm. And obviously, like, I am well aware of, like, the Crusades and all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but seeing it impact a fantasy novel where the main character is also like, oh, I think I have some magic mm-hmm. is really fascinating. Yeah. I really liked the way that T.A. Byron did that. Yeah. Emrys during this time period, near the end of the time where they're living in the village, he kind of starts awakening to his magical powers, um, which makes sense time-wise because it's very common in like all kinds of this stuff for magic to come in like at puberty. At puberty. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's when a lot of other stuff starts happening and that's a lot less fun than magic. So I'd rather have magic. <laughs> yeah. I have magic, please. <laughs> <laughs> and he is realizing that he can like see the natural world in a really special way and maybe even communicate with it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, tells Bronwyn about it and Bronwyn is like encouraging basically I think she says like well the one god would want you to use Mm -hmm. your powers um for good yes so that's what he uh tries to do um he has a couple of scrapes with a bully whose name I don't remember he doesn't matter yeah he's terrible he's the one who like goes on an anti-semitic rant and tries to burn Emrys and Bronwyn alive, mm-hmm. uh, saying that they're, like... Witches. Yeah, that they're witches, um, because he keeps trying to... Uh, he's he's a bully, so he's been trying to fight Emrys to hurt him, and Emrys finally, like, goes off on him and tells him that his father was a Saxon pig, and wounded gravely by this... By these words, he decides to kill both of them. And uh, Emrys... In order to not have that happen, he uses fire, like he has command of fire, and he... It's the first time he really calls on his powers in a sort of unhinged way. Like, Mm -hmm. before that, he just used it to make birds poop on people. Yeah, which, that's hilarious. (laughs) (laughs) Um because they uh, put a bunch of stuff nearby because Mm -hmm. they're going to burn them, and then, so there's lots of, like, kindling for the fire, and he accidentally sets a tree on fire, which falls on the bully. Emrys then plunges into the flames to try to pull the boy out because he doesn't want to kill him. That's, when it happened, I was just like, yeah, <laughs> that little good burn. <laughs> um, we don't actually find out if he died or not. Uh, uh, he does because he comments at one point that the bully's going to have to go through life with, like, really messed up arms. I think his arms, like, got all burned up. But he didn't die. No. Oh, okay. Um, I think he saves him. Okay. But he gets really badly burned. His face gets burned uh, the worst, and he loses sight in both of his eyes, and he has, like, a bunch of gnarly face wounds. Um Bronwyn takes him from the village after this. Not a safe place anymore. And they go to... Is it a, a nunnery or a monastery? 
a monastery. He at first has a period of like deep depression mm-hmm. when they're at the monastery because he's like, I can't ever use my powers again mm-hmm. because I hurt someone and I lost my sight because of it. And now I can't even see you. I don't know what I'm going to do with my life. And then uh, he and Bronwyn start uh, like basically practicing with his second sight and he like really dives into it. He realizes like moving around the monastery that there are like he can see quote unquote things, um, but it's something that he has to develop slowly because it's a new sense. And it's not the same as actual sight. There are differences. And after being at the monastery for not that long, like he's healed, mm-hmm. he's healed up. Uh, Emrys determines that he has to leave to find his home and to like find what he's about. Um, and that's the last we see of Bronwyn in this book. <laughs> also, Emrys is literally like, from the water I came and to the water I shall return. I return to the water. And he builds a horrible raft yep. and with no supplies or anything, just pushes out to sea. It's like me in Tears of the Kingdom. <laughs> Here I go. But you have, you know, you've got some a magic fan. bananas. Yeah, <laughs> my pockets a, are full got of a fan. truffle. <laughs> You'll be okay. So he uh, heads off in his raft, and he there's a giant storm, and uh, he gets washed up on a beach again, um, which is fitting because it's the way that he left, and now he returns to Finkaira which he's familiar with because of stories his mother told him. Uh, but he doesn't realize that's where he is yet. He wakes up on the beach. And uh, he. Ha- I also forgot to say that he has the Galator, um, which was his mother's. It's a, the beautiful necklace that we see. The aforementioned beautiful necklace. Yeah. Um, and at this point, we don't really know too much about it other than it's very special. And Bronwyn gave it to him, like, I don't know, to as a... It's his. And sometimes it kind of loosely warms to his touch. He can tell that it's happy with the direction he's taking. So yeah, he's it's being like a supported by the moonstone, kind yeah. of. And it like the shines. Stone. It shines when he feels love. So mm. it can tell him who he loves. Yes. Which I mean could be useful, honestly. Yeah. He just heads into the woods mm-hmm. off the beach because he doesn't know where he is and he's trying to go like find food and shelter. And uh, he gets like trapped in a tree. I think uh, he's like sort of stuck. A, a tree net. A tree kind of holds on to him and won't yeah. let him go. Yeah, it's like a ant situation, or maybe more like the trees in Fangorn Forest. Mm-hmm. Fangorn, yeah. Um, Fangorn, yeah. There's our Lord of the Rings ref. There will be more, I'm sure. There will. Yeah. Uh, and then he meets Rhea, who uh, at first mocks him and is like. Who are you? You don't know what you're doing. Like, come on, buddy. (laughs) And I am a cute little tree girl. (laughs) Yeah. And she she has good reason to be um, distrustful of strangers. Because there are goblins coming into the forest for the first time ever. Yeah. Um, She takes him home to her home tree. Uh, whose names I forget. It's like a Barasa or something, but it's the oldest, wisest tree. And they're also like tree people. Well, there's only one who's left who is a very sweet, like 
tree woman. It's hard to describe them. They're not quite like Ents. They're more no. of an equal blend of human and tree yeah. rather than just like an alive walking tree. Right, yeah. Um, and, you know, speak in like a wrestling sort of way. <laughs> yeah. Um, so she takes him back to her home tree uh, to meet her tree woman mom. Tree mom and tree surrogate mom. Yeah. And uh, while talking with her, he finds out that there's something really horrible happening in Finkyra. Um, there's a blight. A lot of the land is already blighted, and it's full of goblins and the natural creatures and people of the land are basically cursed mm-hmm. um, at this point. And he learns that it's because King Stagmar is possessed by slash... It's like a Voldemort Professor Quirrell type situation, I feel like. Also kind of like a Theoden situation. Oh, okay. I would say more so because Quirrell's just such a whimpering little nothing. Yeah. Whereas Theoden is like a mighty king that has been whose that's a good fall has been brought yeah. about by like him looking too far in these unhealthy directions mm-hmm. yeah so king stagmar he uh, is uh, like has become one with the demon rita gaur and uh, made some sort of bargain with rita gaur and that involves the complete blighting of the entire land and he won't stop in his quest for destruction because he does what the demon tells him to do. Uh, and the demon basically makes him have like late reign dictator syndrome where he's really, really paranoid mm-hmm. and is like putting tons and tons of resources into like quote unquote protection and weaponry and doesn't trust anything in the land, doesn't see anything as, like, good or worth saving. Like, it's all just about him and his quest, basically. They have an undead army. Yes. (laughs) They build the Shrouded Castle, which is a constantly spinning stone castle. Yeah. Which, the imagery of which I love. And also, it is so destabilizing. And I love that there are multiple moments where Emerus is, like, having to put his staff down to sturdy himself as he's trying to walk around this stupid spinning castle. (laughs) (laughs) It's like you're already dealing with so much, and then you have motion sickness on top Yeah, yeah. And, you know, Rita Gower... Gave him or made him build the statue for protection. <laughs> I don't know. It does seem difficult Everybody to attack. Everybody just spin off. Yeah. <laughs> don't worry about it. And uh, Rhea tells him basically that she had a dream where someone would come in from outside the forest mm-hmm. and he would save us all. Mm-hmm. And uh, Emrys at this point is like, whoa, I'm on a quest. I already have a whole deal. And I don't know who I am. Yeah, like I don't know what your deal is, but it's it's your deal, and I got I've got me basically. <laughs> but maybe you actually learn about who you are through helping others. Yeah, and he, you know, he isn't getting out of this quest. We know that as soon as it's presented. <laughs> and he loves Vinkyra, and he and Rhea become really close. He really cares about her, and they meet a goofy other companion who Madeline will tell you more about. 
Yeah, so they set off and are really quickly... Okay, first they meet Shim, who is a giant, and he's a very small giant. He's a little giant. Yeah, the, the voice that the narrator uses for him in the audiobook is amazing. <laughs> 10 out of 10, no notes. And he uh, is also kind of, the, the way that they find him is because there's this wild amount of bees. and It's an old stump full of bees. So there's yeah, tons of honey. So many bees. Mm-hmm. And Trouble, who is Emrys's Merlin. Yeah, we haven't mentioned Trouble yet. Yeah, he... The reason he's named Trouble is because the first time, first couple times he shows up, he's just being trouble. He's very mischievous. It seems like he's trying to attack people, but in every situation, it turns out that he is protecting them from some grave danger. Yeah. Especially these shape-shifting wraiths that mm-hmm. show up in the forest in the guise of other people or creatures. Yeah, and Trouble can tell, so then he'll start, like, jabbing at you, and you're like, stop it! But then you realize he was trying to tell you there's a horrifying monster. <laughs> and he won't leave Emrys's shoulder, yeah. so he rides with him all the way. Yeah. Continuing to be helpful. So uh, Trouble helps with the bees by distracting them, or he, like, gets them to follow him, basically, and flies off. Um, So then uh, Rhea and Emrys run to go get the honey, and while they're just shoveling honey into their mouths, they accidentally poke Shim's nose. They try to pull it because they think it's a honeycomb, but it's a nose. (laughs) And so Shim was literally just bathing in honey, just, like, lying Still, the, the like <laughs> universal lust for honey in this book is very funny. Yeah, Shim loves honey. It's everywhere. Yeah, um, and uh, Shim explains who he is. They explain who they are. Shim likes Rhea because she's like kind to him, mm-hmm. and he decides to go with them, even though he's scared. But he wants to help. Yeah, yeah. Turns out he's more brave than anyone. So. At this point, that's when they get betrayed. Rhea gets captured. Yeah. 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 Rhea's uh, tree mom. Yeah. Rhea's tree mom, who I really liked up till this point, like flips on her, turns them over to the goblins that are lurking in the forest and tells. They they think at the time that the king is just trying to get the Galator, mm-hmm. and uh, she tells the goblins that they have whatever magical pension. Penchant? Whatever magical pendant they're looking for. And for some stupid reason, believes that they can give her young age, like if she gives these goblins the Galator. Yeah, it's a classic bait and switch. You just offer the you know, good guy, theoretically, that you're trying to turn mm-hmm. whatever they desire the most. Yeah. And when it's time for you to deliver, you just kill them. Yep, just stab them. Stabby stab. Yeah. Uh, so she's dead now, and Imris originally is the one that gets captured, but Rhea switches herself for him. Um, so they end up walking off with Rhea, and Imris is like, no, why did you do that? Like, should have been me. And Shim was, is like, it should have been you. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, he decides that the quest is now go get Rhea, go save Rhea. They meet Kirprey, uh, who they're like literally about to be overtaken by goblins. And he like opens this little door and he's like, get out of here. And they run in there. Not the first time that happened. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 
<laughs> and so they enter into his beautiful uh, home, and he has a big library, and he... And it feels familiar to Emrys. And Shim immediately starts eating all of his honey. <laughs> and it turns out that Kirpre knew Emrys's mom and is like, your mom, Bronwyn. And Emrys is like, uh-oh. <laughs> no, he actually says her name is a different name. Elend. Yeah, Elen, yeah. and then through asking questions, Emrys is able to ascertain that it is indeed his mom, and that Carepre knew him when he was a little baby, mm-hmm. and uh-oh, his dad is maybe evil now. Yeah, that he's told that his dad like sits on the king's council, mm-hmm. and so has been part of um, Stagmar's whole evil deal. It's funny that they like downplay that. I guess they thought that Emrys couldn't handle knowing that, I mean, spoilies. That we're, we're getting there. His dad is more involved in that. Yeah. But it's just funny with him knowing that they're heading for the castle. I know. They're like, oh, I don't, he serves the king. Maybe he's just like, I. this is not my yeah, duty. Not my, not my <laughs> business. Break. I don't have to news. take care of this. Yeah. No, thank you. It's true, though. Uh, so... He says they should Carepre visit Domnu. Yeah, is the one that tells him to visit Domnu. They get out of there. They go to Domnu, uh, who is a um, really has the vibe of like a death god, uh, obsessed with playing games mm-hmm. and sees. But as a woman, which I liked, or like somewhat female presenting, female coded. Yeah, yeah, female coded. Yeah, I think so. Um, really scary. I, and bald, I, which is just badass. Also bald, yes. <laughs> Rocking their evil, evil ways. <laughs> and I mean, it's maybe evil is the wrong word because it's more of like a chaotic neutral yeah. type deal, yeah. I think. Yeah. Um, and uh, he finds out that someone already bet against him living the next 24 hours with Dom, Dom Nu. Dom Nu. Uh, which is a little bit of a bummer to find out. And he decides to make his own wager. But Domnu bet that he would live. Domnu bet for him to survive. No, yeah, like Domnu's upset to see him because she's <laughs> like, oh man, bad deal, bad deal. <laughs> uh, he decides to make his own wager um, and uh, he tells her that he'll give her the Galator if he gets them to, uh, if Domnu gets them to the shrouded castle, he'll mm-hmm. give Domnu the Galator. If mm-hmm. he returns alive, then Domnu has to give back the Galator. Yeah, which didn't happen in this book. I really thought that they I would know, go that back. That's gonna be the last thing. Yeah, <laughs> I, do. I mean, I really want to read later, more of them. Later so days. hopefully, yeah. it's like the first thing at the second one, or maybe he's just like whatever. <laughs> I don't want to see got so much again. of the other treasures. And I really <laughs> yeah, I don't want to go back there. Domnu makes Empress and Shim tiny, and they ride on Trouble. Who is a Merlin? So cool. <laughs> I know. Yeah, yeah. It's a really, really cool scene. Um, so uh, Trouble takes them to the castle, and uh, once they get there, then they become large again. I like that instead of making Trouble big, Domnu just made both of them very small. I thought that was cute. 
and also more realistic when it comes to like mm-hmm. the load bearing ability of a For hawk. Sure. <laughs> and also you maybe don't want to like very obviously be a gigantic hawk flying into this castle. That too. That too. Good for subterfuge. Yep. That's why they didn't ride the eagles to Mount Doom. Among other reasons. <laughs> but we will not have this conversation. We will not stoop to this level. <laughs> So they show up at the castle. Uh, Emrys finds Rhea in the dungeon, but Shim, <clears throat> they don't, he doesn't, he loses track of him, he says. He doesn't know where he wandered off to. Um, and so he and Rhea are planning to escape when they get caught by the goblins and the dead men. I forget what the, like, de- doom face? They're like... <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to call them Gulianis. <laughs> and they're really bad lawyers. They're really bad. <laughs> um, bad at everything, in fact. Yeah. Um, but they're Gulians. That's what they're Gullians. actually called. Gulians. A.K.A. Gulianis. Gulianis. Yeah, that's what they are from now How on. have I not seen that anywhere? Guliani. <laughs> okay, please continue. So they get got, they get brought before the king, and it, it turns out that the king is his dad. He's he's like looking around at the advisors and trying to figure out which one of him is which one of them is his dad. But it, it's the king. It's the evil king. Stagmar is his dad, uh, and he finds out that what really happened with um, the demon. Rita Gower is that no human, no child of human blood was supposed to be born in Finkyra. It's like a prophecy or rule or a legend or something. I don't know. It would make the spirits unhappy, mm-hmm. basically. So it's, it's something. It's not the human's land to no, Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's what it's about. It's too magical. It's an in between place, which yes. we can talk more about, but it's seen as Liminal like, space. Yes. The connection between heaven and earth. So it's not meant for earthly beings. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and the punishment for having a human child um, is that the human child is exiled and the mom gets thrown in the evil cauldron that kills you. And uh, in order to not have that happen because he loves Ellen or Bronwyn, we know now, um, he makes a deal with Rita Gower uh, that if... That Bronwyn will be fine as long as he can throw Imrus in the cauldron. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Bronwyn finds this out when Imrus is like six-ish, yeah. and that's why she fled. Um, and now he's come back, and he, he finds out that they don't care that he doesn't have the Galator. Because at first I was like, oh, that's actually a really secure place for it yeah. if the king's trying to get the Galator to yeah. leave it with Domnu. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Hell yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody wants to go in there. Nope. Um, but we find out that the real treasure was Amrys. <laughs> he was the tool. Uh, there's a scuffle. He, he doesn't want to die. Um, there's like one part where the demon kind of slips the mask off. And I think that's why we get that story. Which one? The story about Bronwyn and... Yes. Yeah. So what act, what happens is that Emrys decides to use his powers because he decides that if he uses them out of love and out of a desire to help people mm-hmm. rather than out of fear and trying to commit vengeance, right. 
he can trust them. Mm-hmm. And he feels the wall of flames rising again. Flames, flames yeah. on the side flames. of his face. And he pushes them down. And instead, he grabs one of the, like, secret lost treasures, which is, I can't remember what it's called. It's, like, it's the, sword. the dual blade or something like that. Mm-hmm. And one side cuts your soul and the other one heals it. Mm-hmm. And he cuts his dad with mm-hmm. the soul cut inside. Yeah, so that's why So then why he, he starts gets... to be able to, like, exist out of his demon possession um, or his god possession mm-hmm. and be able to be more honest about everything. But then Rita Gar cuts him with the soul, like, preserving right. side. Yeah. So then he gets, like, sucked back into his control. Yeah. And and ultimately it becomes a battle between Trouble and Rita Gower as, mm-hmm. like, a shadowy fist. Yeah, yeah. Trouble whips in there and starts battling the ancient demon. Super great. Um, it looks like it's ultimately a very tense battle. Uh, but that Rita Gower's like evil is kind of winning out. Um, and Stagmar is like, get him, get him in the cauldron, get him in the cauldron. Like they're the Gouliants have got him and they're going to throw trying him in to the get cauldron. in that cauldron. Yeah. And then suddenly. It's called the cauldron of death, but I can't help but call it the black the cauldron. The black cauldron, yeah. <laughs> Which we'll talk about. Suddenly Shim sprints through, pittering, pattering with his teeny tiny giant feet. And he throws himself in the cauldron. And because the one way to destroy the cauldron is to willingly throw yourself in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so there's a crack. The cauldron splits. And uh, for a second, it's like, oh, no, Shim is dead. And then Shim starts getting huge. <laughs> Very huge. Because he's fulfilled a an ancient song, a prophecy about giants dancing in and the then hall and then all small the giants big <laughs> and ends become beginnings yeah. and then the giants who have been hunted into hiding or you know quasi extinction because mm-hmm. of another prophecy that the giants would th- overthrow the king and yep. overthrow Ritagar mm-hmm. it all goes back to the prophecies you guys <laughs> <laughs> it's ancient magic and you know. it's, yeah you get it and the giants all show up and yeah. they crumble the castle yeah they sorry I got too excited it's your summer it. you're doing a great Job. That's okay. I appreciate the help. <laughs> Their dancings and prancings uh, destroy the castle. A great way to destroy an evil stronghold is by dancing it to death. But meanwhile, something very sad happens um, because uh, uh, trouble ultimately, along with Rita Gower, question mark, dies. They're, they both shrink into small white and black points of light, and then they disappear. So what we're <laughs> surmising happened, and what Emrys thinks happened, is that they took this very rare path that you can take, where you pass directly into the other world, mm-hmm. rather than waiting and or traveling through some kind of liminal space. Yeah. Um, and because, obviously, trouble is going to the good place mm-hmm. that, like, maybe Rita Gar got pulled up there. We're not sure. Well, I'm, obviously, they'll, <laughs> we'll learn more in the subsequent books. Yeah. So, they're in the Elysian Fields, mm-hmm. and uh, that is sad. But it, there is also this hint of, like, well, maybe we'll see trouble again maybe. sometime. And maybe we'll see Rita Gower, too. <laughs> yeah. Um, and Shim... Uh, Helps Rhea and uh, Imris escape. Imris finds these um, 
seven legendary tools, I think. He finds six out of seven. He's yeah. trying to find them all, but the castle is literally crumbling to the bits. the giants are dancing. And Shim, at the last second, as he and his dad fall down into nothingness, mm-hmm. grabs them and is like, good thing I got two hands because I'm holding all the treasures in the other one. Yeah. And um, brings them up to safety. Yeah, he brings Bob. He's like, oh, Sagmar, I'm going to eat him. And Amrus is like, wait, <laughs> just put him in jail. <laughs> Let's not eat him. Um, so, yeah, Sagmar makes it out. And uh, then uh, at the very end, Emrys is discussing with Rhea how he would like to spend some time helping to restore the land using the magical tools that he... There's one that makes things grow really fast. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then the other important conversation they have is that Rhea's like, you still don't feel like you have your true name and you felt like Emrys was never right. And maybe you should go by the name that will always connect you to trouble, which is Merlin. Which is pretty cute. We like it. Merlin. It's a good name. I'm into bird names. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good name. Okay. Very long summary, but that was a really good ride so yeah i hope y'all enjoyed catching up on the last years of merlin let's get into old and new impressions um would you like to go first or should i i go first okay. i uh, like i was saying earlier i read this series a lot i think i read the later ones more um I don't know, just because I was a kid and I liked reading about older kids because it made me feel more mature. <laughs> feel that? Um, but I think this is a really good foundation. Uh, reading it was very peaceful. Mm-hmm. It was not like it wasn't stressful at all, even though some like pretty big stuff is happening. Um, and it, it is a little more grim and grisly than a lot of you know, middle grade to YA fantasy books. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, maybe because I'd read it so many times, but it just feels like very comfortable mm-hmm. uh, and not scary, mm-hmm. basically. Like sometimes books like give me a lot of anxiety. Yes. <laughs> Same. <laughs> and I really didn't get that with this. And I knew, I remembered that Bronwyn was his mother. So I just felt so bad for her. Like yeah. when she's being like, why, why don't you ever call me mother? It's like, cause you're not my mother. <laughs> oh, no, dude, she is. <laughs> and he feels so bad when he realizes that she actually is. And we don't really learn why he felt like she wasn't right. Especially because the whole book is about his like, senses being correct and him being able to figure out like what's true beyond what's I really think it was about just like his anger and his angst yeah and his like rejection of her because he believes that like she could tell him all these things that he feels that are being kept from him which like is true that she's not telling him things but it's not that she's not his mother it's that she's like completely destroyed her life to give him his yeah um and he does like come to realize that later, which mm-hmm, I appreciated. Sure. Um, but the the part of the beginning with the village, I definitely just totally glossed over as a kid because I didn't remember it all. And it, the like we've discussed, the historical context is super interesting. Mm-hmm. And now I can actually like look at it and digest it mm-hmm. um, instead of like when I was reading this, I might have even been in like Catholic school. Mm-hmm. Um, so Probably. it was like 
you know, I wouldn't have questioned being like, God is in here with mm-hmm. all of this like mythology and stuff. Right. Um, God is everywhere. <laughs> right. Yeah. So versus as an adult, it's a lot more like mm-hmm. noticeable. Um, I like Shim a lot. He <laughs> really. Gurgi of yeah. the last years of Berlin. Yeah. Big, big Shim fan. And I was almost. I'm glad he got big. It was what he really, really wanted. And like now he can go be with his people. Yeah. Um, but he I was, was so isolated. Yeah. But the audiobook changed his voice. It got really deep when he got big. I was like, <laughs> no, I wanted it to stay. <laughs> was it like a high voice? Or was oh, it's it just- like this. <laughs> <laughs> it was <Okay>. great. <laughs> That's perfect. Yeah. Um, I thought that the spider was really cool. Yeah, talk about the Grandalusa. That was her name, right? Yeah, I liked the vibe of like, you know, I have all of this information and I can tell you things, but I will eat you because mm-hmm. I can't stop eating. And I love that she changes her size to small just to make them a little less appealing to her. But then she's like, I'm going to get big again. Yeah. <laughs> going to do it. Like... It's going to happen. Yeah. And it was it was funny, too, imagining, like, the cute little silver spider mm-hmm. when she was small and then turns and into, just, like, like a, eating some beetles. Right. And then get, turns into a horrifying, uh, like, behemoth spider that everyone's just like, oh, everybody yeah. run. Yeah. <laughs> um, but she eats some goblins, too. Like, she helps them out. I mean, yeah. she just wanted to eat. So, you know, everyone wins. <laughs> she just got to eat. Um, but yeah, a lot of Lord of the Rings influences, a lot of Black Cauldron influences, um, and uh, a lot of influences by historical, like rooted in historical magic practices. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've been like very interested in nature, like slash natural magic for a while. So it was really cool to see so much of that in there. Yeah, it's a nice combination of really established high fantasy tropes mm-hmm. plus some of this historical context, especially as it relates to the Arthurian legend. And yeah. anything that's set in the Middle Ages that has like any real historical context is like very dark, very mm-hmm. interesting, very messy. Yep. <laughs> um just, you know, ripe. Not <laughs> going on. <laughs> Yeah, so agree, agree with all, um, co-sign. I don't, I really don't remember this book very well. Mm. Um, I know that we read like most, if not all of the series. This came out in 96, so it also came out at like prime reading time for me. Yeah. Um, I think we had it a few years after that. Um, I think it took a little time to find it, but I was just such a little Merlin head um, pretty much my whole life, thanks to very early viewings of The Sword in the Stone, yeah. which we had taped off of TV, <laughs> and what I would give to have that tape today, <laughs> plus all the commercials from whatever year oh, that boy. was. Um yeah, and you were I you were a wizard for Halloween a few times. Really into wizards, not just Gandalf. A no, wizard. No, I was my own wizard yeah. creation. Yeah. One of Madeline's and Maya's very bad fights because um, we didn't fight that much, but it was usually about clothes when it did happen. Oh yeah, and yeah. I had just finished um, spending hours uh, creating glitter glue art on my wizard cape. <laughs> 
for Halloween. And then Madeline like picked it up and threw it. <laughs> and it got some glitter glue on the floor that remained there to, like until we left. I have only a vague memory of this. It was a long time ago. I do remember the, the cloak and it did look messy, which it makes was sense messy. in context. <laughs> 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 it certainly was. Um, but one of a wizard's powers are forgiveness. <laughs> Here we are today. It's true. Yeah, super obsessed with wizards and of the Arthurian legends, Merlin was always the one that stood out to me the most, which is extra funny because in Sword in the Stone, my first introduction to him, he's like a very quirky old man yeah. who lives in a cave. And I was like, yep. <laughs> I can understand relating to that. That's me. It's me. It was really fascinating reading this book from an adult perspective and thinking about the ways that T.A. Barron approached, like, first of all, just handling doing a Merlin series, because I can't imagine how intimidating it is to do like a relatively straight Merlin series where you're really drawing on all of the folklore and historical context and very established versions of this character. But I think the reason that Merlin is so appealing, like truly to so many of us, I mean, Merlin heads get at me (laughs) is because he has been so many things. Yeah. And he's a really weird character. I also always loved that he was the one who like, made sure Arthur existed. Mm -hmm. Like he ensured Arthur's conception and then him pulling the sword from the stone and then was a guide to him in some stories. In others, he wasn't a guide to Arthur at all. He was like a really weird shapeshifter who was like lurking around the edges. Yeah, the like mystical hermit who like had to make sense of his whatever he's doing, but he was doing it at his own speed. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And I mean, his origins are so so old that it's hard to even like trace but the more familiar depictions that we have of him came from writers in the 12th and 13th centuries mm-hmm. um the first one was uh, his title is british pseudo historical author which i love there have been a lot of people like that that we've talked about in uh, inspirations for different fairy tales and things like that where they just like made stuff up yeah. like how the green man is a fake myth but that wasn't actually found as a concrete figure in folklore we talked about that in our green man episode um where there was a writer who saw that symbol everywhere and was like i'm just gonna pretend that this was like a concrete thing um but it was actually just a combination of symbols that was common you know like leaves coming out of a man's mouth it was like truly aesthetic there wasn't like a deeper figure behind it well it's it's interesting too because the the Celtic people were colonized so hard that mm-hmm. they were basically erased from history. Mm-hmm. So, like, our only historical records of them are from, like, I think Caesar, like Julius Caesar and Pliny mm. the Elder. Pliny. Yeah. Pliny, baby. Yeah. Pliny comes up. You know, when I started this, when we started this podcast, <laughs> I didn't think I'm going to spend so much time <laughs> thinking about Pliny, Pliny the Elder. Elder. What a name. <laughs> Can that be my name if I make it into a history book? Just Pliny the Elder. <laughs> Talking about rewriting history. Be <laughs> 
So British pseudo-historic author Geoffrey of Monmouth um, was the first to really like establish a set Merlin vibe. And then that was built off of and and created into the character that we're more familiar with today Mm -hmm. by the French poet Robert de Bohan and then a variety of successors who kept tweaking things. But they're kind of credited with current Merlin. Um, So Geoffrey combined early tales of two Britain prophets that weren't actually connected to Arthur. Uh, and their names were Murden and Ambrosius. And then from, <laughs> Ambrosius. That, he made, from that, he made a character called Mer- drag queen Merlinus Ambrosius, which is amazing. And his version of the character became incredibly popular in Wales. And then mm. later on, more romantic, like chivalry type story writers in France expanded on him okay. um, and then made the figure that we're more familiar with today and like just one of the most defining, you know, Middle Ages literary characters. And the final version of Merlin was that <laughs> the demons of hell who were annoyed by the presence of Christ and him rescuing souls from hell, which they saw as, you know, their territory, um, decided that they were going to plot the birth of an antichrist. And they Merlin send the an incubus to impregnate a, a princess in Wales who is also um, a nun. And then when the child is born, the mother who is so devout finds a priest right away to baptize him so they don't have a chance because he is immediately saved from hell. And then that's that's Merlin. Wow. That's wow, him. what an origin story. But because of like an incubus, he can shapeshift and he also has magical powers and he can foresee the future and had like a deep connection with God in this like very pivotal moment. So he just basically decides like, I'm going to be good instead of evil. But sometimes he is evil in all of the old Merlin stories. So fascinating stuff. And being able to synthesize that and think about that while reading this book and seeing, I mean, in the introduction, I don't know if you listened to it, but T.A. Barron talked. It's an audiobook. I was forced to. <laughs> I don't want to accidentally skip Madeline's into the book. famously anti-introduction. <laughs> Just want to start reading the book. And then I guess if it's an epilogue or an afterward, you can skip it because you know the book is over. So authors put I'll it at the beginning. I'll listen to an epilogue. If it's, if it's an epilogue, if it's part in of the book. story, yeah, 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 then I'll listen to it. But if it's an afterward, I'm probably... Authors know it's afterwards. Or probably switch it over to a YouTube video <laughs> <laughs> at that point. I'm finished. <laughs> and he talked about how it was really frightening to take on this character and that he thought it would be compelling to focus on this period of Merlin's life that hasn't gotten a lot of attention when he is just a kid and is trying to understand himself. And I felt like he did an interesting twist on the like demon dad where his father was originally good guy. And then Mm -hmm. he was pulled in by, you know, lured in by the forces of evil. And his father says that his grandfather is the one who had powers similar to him. So skips a generation. Right. And I'm not sure if we'll learn more about that piece on his, um, lineage i'm not sure but i i thought it was really compelling that he did that and then his mother's super devout and it's because of the power of you know a christian god and also other gods Mm -hmm. that he is pushed in the direction of love of good of choosing to help rather than create chaos yeah so i thought that was all really well done and in a way that's palatable for young readers like i don't think 
um, a nun princess being raped by an incubus is gonna fly. (laughs) Another piece that I really enjoyed thinking about was some of what we mentioned where there is a lot of religious strife and tension because of the period of time that we're in and the way that the magic that's inherent to the pagan traditions creates that tension with the Christianity that's the prevailing norm of the time. And I loved getting really specific Welsh, Greek, and Roman myths being Mm -hmm. brought in and referenced so fluidly and easily against one another. And like, this is how we should all be able to exist by like referencing these different traditions and stories that are valuable to us without having to ascribe to any one group, whether it's mm-hmm. by like religious or ethnic or whatever denomination. Yeah, I really I really enjoyed that as well because it's like an approach I try to take to life about like taking the interesting stuff where it comes and not having sure. to like I'm only gonna do this. It also draws really heavily from the uh, don't know how to say it, Mabinogion. Yeah which is the earliest group of Welsh prose stories. Um, So they were compiled in Middle Welsh in the 12th to 13th centuries from like earlier oral versions. Mm. And the Black Cauldron also drew heavily from the Mabinogion. So that's why there are so many similarities between the two stories. They're doing takes on the same source material. Okay. Although the Black Cauldron came out 30 years earlier. Um, And uh, there's a group of like really, really wide ranging stories. It's like... Romance, fantasy, humor, tragedy, tons of different, you know, narrators and, like, original authors. There's, like, classic hero quests and historic legends. Um, And then there's, like, a weird version of King Arthur that isn't really seen in other versions. So it's just, like, a total magical grab bag. (laughs) You can kind of get in there and see what you like. I I would love to, um, like, read it in whole, a translation, obviously. Do not speak Welsh, as you know from hearing me say Mabinogion a million times. (laughs) I'm never saying it again. I'm done now. (laughs) And then the other piece that was really cool for me to learn about, because I really felt the conservationist voice that was present in the book and clearly tied to the author, and my mother-in-law is a an activist, conservationist, environmentalist, and author. And I feel like I'm I've become like more and more attuned to like you're talking about nature the right way. Like this is to help <laughs> inspire the same sort of yeah. love in other mm-hmm. people. Reverence of mm-hmm. yeah. And I learned that T. A. Barron had a very interesting has had a very interesting life he is still with us he is maybe <laughs> listening to this episode right now he reached Hello. out on instagram which was very nice he was a Rhodes scholar so he attended princeton oxford and harvard so he has business and law degrees whoa did a lot then he initially worked at a hedge fund and then in 1990 it was like absolutely not i'm going to leave this behind i'm moving back to colorado which is where i grew up and became obsessed with mountains and i'm becoming a full-time writer and conservationist and since then he has written more than 30 books for readers of all ages is very involved with many different conservation organizations and has continued to create 
like a range of different scholarships for students interested in studying environmental law or environmental studies and biodiversity research. And so he's like really committed his life to giving to this cause. That's awesome. A brief misstep into finance, (laughs) (laughs) which, hey, good, good on you for getting out. Yeah, that's, that's really, really cool. And he has said that it's very important to him to write about nature and ecology in mythical settings. And he is inspired by nature's power of renewal, plus humanity's power of free choice. So that combination is really potent. And he said, quote, I truly believe every person can make a difference. That's why I'm drawn to heroic quest stories. And looking at this story as a heroic quest story, I thought, like, like we've been saying, there are a lot of you know, pretty common tropes present. There's this boy who doesn't know his lineage or his father. He sets out on a mysterious journey guided by instinct alone. He uh, gains friends through whom he experiences personal growth as he realizes that it's more important to help those around you than to be totally interest in your personal pursuits. And in the end, he even gets the classic, like, I am your father moment. Yeah, (laughs) I know. (laughs) Which is great. Um, But through all of that, there's just such a gentleness to the way that these characters are fleshed out to their experiences in Finkaira and in the forest and to just the general broadening of awareness that mm-hmm. Emrys undergoes. Because at first he is just, you know, clearly like friend smitten with Rhea and wanting to help her, but he truly grows to love the forest mm-hmm. and has a deep grief when he considers the fact that it's being destroyed and when he comes across the dead giant stumps that mm-hmm. were significant trees yeah. um, that have been ruined by the king's um, Gullians, Gullians, Gullianis, <laughs> and goblins and the like. And I found that all really, really pleasurable to read as an adult. Um, so if you're looking for something like it's not challenging, it's very beautiful, it's very soothing, and if you're feeling like just wandering in a magical forest for really a few days. great characters, too. Really, really yeah. good characters. I really love them. And we'll, ta- I, we'll talk about Rhea during our Badass Lady Meter segment. Yep. <laughs> First, it's trouble time. Animals, just like animals, animals in this animals book. Animals in this book. And we gave trouble a pretty good introduction already, but... Madeline loves birds. I very much appreciate birds as well. And I love the connection between the name Merlin and the Merlin bird. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> I thought that was cute. I love that when Emrys is on Trouble's back when they're flying to the Shrouded Castle, he's really appreciating how thick and luxurious and strong his feathers are. And he's yeah. like, to me, when I'm big, they look just so insignificant. But I see this amazing framework. It's like a steel <laughs> bar. Like It's just amazing. <laughs> and just like feeling his power beneath them. And he did, they do something really cool where he's guiding trouble with his second sight. Um, mm-hmm. Because this is when he overpowers his belief that his second sight doesn't work unless there is physical light, right. which 
from the start, I was like, my guy, you're not seeing with your eyes. You can develop this. Like, it doesn't, you don't have to have a light source, yeah. clearly, in order to be able to sense your surroundings. Like, to me, it felt more sort of like, I don't know, some version of echolocation or something like yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, like magical echolocation. Yeah, and he got there, he got through it, and he's steering trouble by turning his head and wings in different directions, and they bust through a window in the castle and then, like, pass out against a wall. <laughs> Yet another moment of unconsciousness, but I, uh, it was pretty magnificent. I say this a lot, but I would like a video game of this book, um, and I look forward to being... So terrible at the the, <laughs> the bird flight. Like, yeah, at the bird flight. <laughs> also, what if the game makes, makes the screen completely black? <laughs> you have to see with your second sight. <laughs> yeah, I guess it would be kind of like Witcher's sense where you have to like hold down a button forever and then you get little like <laughs> fisheye lens. <laughs> yeah. Uh, speaking of adaptations of the book, there has been an adaptation underway with Disney for many years now. Um, and T.A. Barron has a great page on his website where he puts updates there himself about how it's going. And it sounds like he's been really involved in the production process. The script screenplay was originally written by Philippa Boyens, who wrote The Lord of the Rings really? trilogy. But then they... I think it's been so many years and, you know, projects change hands, studios decide they want a different direction. She was, it sounds like, removed from it, but her version was continued, continued on in development. Um, That's cool. And uh, so right now the writer is Chris White, who has written, who wrote Rogue One and The Golden Compass and Twilight New Moon. (laughs) Oh, boy. (laughs) And Twilight New Moon. I hadn't read that yet. Oh my gosh, that's well, so I mean, funny. I it's not very different from the book, right? No, so right. it's not yeah, like you put a lot of that creative vision. No, yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, and yeah, it's been it's been under development for years. The last update update was from 2021, but it sounds like it's pretty far along in terms of like it actually happening. Like they have a director. They have producers. Um, it's clearly moving forward, even at a glacial pace. Um, and now we have the writer's strike. Mm. So we'll see. Just work and on the video game instead. There may be an actor's strike coming up quickly as well. Um, so, you know, this is the great thing about our podcast. Uh, we have enough books to cover until the day we die, just from books that have already been Yeah, much longer than that. Much, much longer than that. So So we'll be here. (laughs) Run out of TV. Dragon babies are here. Uh, last note about T.A. Barron, he has his own podcast called Magic and Mountains, the T.A. Barron podcast. Haven't checked it out, but I encourage anyone interested to do so. Yeah. Pretend food. Pretend food. This honey. book had good pretend food. Buckets of honey. I mean, I I was I was into it. Um, it's all foraged for the most part, mm-hmm. or like made by trees. <laughs> <laughs> made by trees. I feel like that's also very like red wally type food. Yeah. Um, near the start, Emrys is hungry and doing his like casual but meaningful adventurer thing, where he's just like wandering, you know through woods with little regard for where he's going. Yeah. 
and he says, My gaze fell to a bouquet of tan mushrooms wearing shaggy manes, nestled among the needles at the base of the pine. From my forages with Branwen, I knew them to be good eating. I pounced. In short order, I had consumed everyone, as well as the roots of a purple-leafed plant growing nearby. I love his casual confidence with eating random mushrooms and forest roots. Um, please, yeah, don't eat mushrooms unless you are certainly sure of what they are. It sounds like he was. That's okay. I guess it's a second sight type thing. True. Maybe the mushroom had a, maybe it made the pendant glow or something Didn't like that. Didn't have a biohazard sign on it. After Emrys gets his second sight and he is able to move past his depression, he gets hungry. Right away, I started eating and hardly stopped, especially if I could get bread in milk, my favorite. Come back to that. Or blackberry (laughs) jam on bread crusts or mustard mixed with raw goose eggs, which gave me the added fun of making any nearby nuns ill. Yeah, that's gross. I don't want that. No, thank you. Is he eating it on like... Bread? Sounds like he's eating it with a spoon. Oh, I just had a little gag. <laughs> okay, but for a boy... It grossed you out, too. For a boy who says that his favorite food is bread in milk. That's bread dash in dash milk. Is that a sweet dish? Is that like... I mean, draw I, your knowledge of Middle Ages cuisine. Is that like a pudding, maybe? Maybe, but honestly, for like... If it's like real uh, delicious fresh milk and good bread, like isn't that pretty good eating when you've been living in a medieval village your whole life? I found a recipe for milk toast, milk um, toast. which is like brioche with cinnamon sugar in a bowl of milk in like large pieces. Nah, I figured he just had like milk and he was dipping bread in it. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. If the milk's thick enough, I would do that. Maybe it shouldn't be thick enough. <laughs> like fat, like creamy. All right, I got All you. Right. I'm not eating the, the goose We're eggs, not. Though. We will be doing for our Babe Treon in July and August pretend food episodes. One gross episode, one delicious. I don't think we're going to do raw goose egg with mustard. Nope. No, no, Although no, no, I no. do have duck eggs in the fridge right now from my friend Michelle. My dog might eat that. Other I mean, than that, she would. we get, we get um, <laughs> him wandering around eating raspberries and brambleberries, some random cheeses, crusts of bread, and thanks. Then when he gets into Finkaira, he is eating the most sublime, fake, tropical fruit yeah. that you could ever imagine. Um, the uh, berries that Rhea prefers are so sweet <laughs> that Emrys can't even handle yeah. them. And she's just like, gulp, 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 gulp. And that made me think of you. Yeah, I would well. eat those. I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> he uh, is stunned by how sweet they are. And then they get to the like wild fruit orchard and they gorge themselves. I think only some of these are real fruits. So he says there are orange spheres that explode with tangy fla- flavor that he has to peel. One variety shaped like an urn contained so many seeds that I spat it out in disgust. I don't know what that an is. Urn. Then I tried another, circular with an open hole in the middle. No idea. No, and, yeah. To my relief, it tasted like sweet milk and bore no seeds at all. Next, I swallowed half of a gray egg-shaped fruit. Although it had almost no taste, it somehow made me feel sad, aching with longing for all the things in my life lacked. All the things my life lacked. I mean... <laughs> I'm glad that fruit doesn't exist. Don't eat that fruit, man. I don't need that. That's like an anti-antidepressant. It's just a depressant. And then there's the 
very special fruit. I can't remember what it's called, like a linoc or something, um, which is a spiral-shaped fruit that is pale purple, and it's just described as a flavor like purple sunshine, mm. which... I like that description. I'd also like a little more, like, maybe some kind of taste reference. <laughs> purple sunshine doesn't mean anything. <laughs> tastes like purple sunshine and sugar. <laughs> right. No, I think so. So maybe it tastes like ube. It's probably just what I need to head toward. Maybe. But, like, sweet ube, not, like, ube the potato. I guess I'm thinking of something a lot, ju- like, very juicy, which doesn't jive with ube. No, exactly. Like, yeah. ube flavor. But then, yeah. I don't know. Okay, <laughs> then um, Quen, the tree person that later betrays them, has them out to dinner. The slim figure poured something that looked like honey over her concoction, a platter of rolled leaves crammed with reddish-brown nuts. The whole thing gave off a hearty, roasted smell, and then she plunges one of the rolled leaves into honey before she eats it, because Quen is on the honey train, just like Shem, yeah. <laughs> just like Rhea, just like everyone else. I'm worried about their teeth. <laughs> and she, in fact, says, a person can never get enough honey. <laughs> I mean, it's packed with energy. It, that's all it is. There's the aforementioned meeting of Shim, which is literally in honey. I don't know how he's just laying in it. in there. And it's only because they gorge so hard on that honey that they they find him. Yeah. (laughs) Then the last food I want to shout out is when he is with Care Prey, when Emerus and Shim are with Care Prey. And Care brings down a slab of dark, grainy bread and gives half to Emerus. I half grinned and took a bite of the crusty bread. It felt hard, almost like wood, until some vigorous chewing softened it up a bit. Then, to my surprise, it swiftly dissolved into liquid, filling my mouth with a tangy, minty flavor. Almost as soon as I swallowed, a wave of nourishment flowed through me. I straightened my back. Even the usual pain between my shoulder blades eased a little. I took another bite. You like ambrosia bread, I can see, said Carepray through a mouthful. One of Slantos's finest achievements, without doubt. Still, it is said that no one from other parts of Fenkaira has ever tasted any of the Slantos's most special breads, and that they guard those precious recipes with their lives. Love it. I don't think that bread sounds good. I, mean, I don't actually want to eat it, but I love the description. I would eat it. I don't like it swiftly dissolving into tangy, minty liquid. It does seem like it could go down the wrong pipe. (laughs) Yeah, it it seems dangerous. And also just like to go from bread flavored to tangy minty. I I don't know. I guess we'll have to bake some I mean, look, if it makes all my aches and pains go away, I can have it taste a lot less nice than that. That's true. I do appreciate that. And that touched on one lovely detail in this book that I didn't mention, which is that Emerus has a constant pain between his shoulder blades, and Carepray tells him that it's because all the residents of Vinkyra once had wings, and it's the missing wings that their shoulders ache for. Yeah. Very lovely. Yeah. And Emerus does get to fly on Trouble's back before the book is out. Badass Lady Meter! Badass Lady! Rhea? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, so we rarely cover books with male protagonists yeah. that are also written by men. Mm. Um, yeah, that's true. I Because a lot of Diana Wynne Jones' books have male protagonists, but it's DWJ. There's a female perspective in there. So 
I was really delighted to see how much attention Rhea got and just how lovely she is. She is such a little sprite, Mm -hmm. but she's also really thoughtful. She's less, ultimately less mischievous than I expected when we first met her. Yeah. And she cares deeply about the forest. She really takes Mm -hmm. on responsibility for it. And she grew up like a orphan. I mean, she was raised by trees. Emrys had more than she did, and she's not bitter. She's yeah, and full her of joy. Her one surrogate parent immediately betrayed her, her, given the I know, chance. She doesn't really get the uh, emotional fallout. Yeah, she fallout. doesn't get to, <laughs> doesn't get to because she's, process that. She's immediately kidnapped yeah. and put in a dungeon. Yeah, and I love that the way he realizes she's in one of the cells is that it looked like there was a pile of whole leaves in yeah. the corner, and he's like, "Wait, it's her little leaf garb." Yeah, <laughs> leaf garb. Yeah, adored Rhea. She and Emrys and Shim are the trio I yearn for. And I love that for most of the time, they're just friends, too. Like, yeah. it's just good vibes. Mm-hmm. There isn't a lot. Because because of the Black Cauldron similarities, I was thinking a lot of Ilan Wee and um, Taryn. Assistant pig keeper. Yes. Um, who are, like, always kind of needling each other a bit. Yeah. Um, and have, you know, a complicated relationship, to be sure. <laughs> the Black Cauldron is a lot darker yeah. than book one, the last year's Merlin, whatever the title yeah, is. Yeah, the Black Cauldron <laughs> bumps me out. I mean, it's it's a great book, but it, it was, makes me sad. It's also <laughs> reflecting on the fact that Shim sacrifices himself here And he does it out of completely pure good. Mm -hmm. It is to be brave. It is to save his friends. Mm -hmm. In the Black Cauldron, Eladir sacrifices himself to destroy it. But it's after he's been fully shamed and disgraced. And I have always thought it was because he saw it as a way to gain the fame and power that he sought Mm -hmm. in life. Yeah. So that's kind of like a distillation of how, like, this is a sweet, lovely version of some of those old stories. Yeah. And the Black Cauldron is war as hell. No. For, yeah. <laughs> no, definitely. This I was very happy that Shim, uh, like, he reverse died, like, everything. Right. He got everything he, he got wanted. All, all of his yeah. dreams came true. Yeah. He got to be a big boy. I was upset when I realized what was happening because I was like, no, not Jim. No, I was worried that trouble was going to go into the cauldron. <laughs> he died sacrificing yeah, himself he, in another way. Yeah, he's the one that actually did get got. My rating for Rhea is a better tree mom. <laughs> One that doesn't betray you the first chance she gets. She still has her, like, supreme mother tree mom, but that's less of a person and more of a tree. (laughs) 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 Like, to hug that tree mom, the tree just kind of, like, encircles her with branches a little bit. Whereas Quen was, like, an actual kind of humanoid figure. Um, And, like, that... Betrayal is handled so quickly in the book, and it's huge. Yeah. It is huge that she does that. Mm-hmm. Very yeah. sad. So I'm, I guess my rating is for that to not have happened and Rhea to have an awesome tree mom who takes very good care of her and would never tell the goblins where she is. Actually, since since Grace gave hers to Rhea, I'm, I'm going to give mine to Elen because I, I do feel like... I wish she were in the book more. Yeah, and I feel like... She gets She's a little shafted the most. in favor of, like, who's the dad? Right. I want my daddy. But she's definitely the most, like, tragic figure. Yeah. Um, her son won't even call her his mother. Yeah. And she, like, completely exiles 
herself from like, you know, yeah. Uh, and uh, my rating for her is being able to go home. Oh, yeah. I want her to go to Vinkyra, although like, I guess she can. I don't know. We're going to have to see what happens. To consult the spirits. And Emrys has the pointed ears of Finkyrans because he's half Finkyrans. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Um, I don't know. I mean, after the events of this book, I think things maybe can be a little <laughs> less inflexible. Yeah, right. Um, but gosh, we're just going to have to see. We're going to have to check back in with Merlin. Mer- Merlin. Merlin. <laughs> Merlin. Now we can call him Merlin. <laughs> <laughs> to find out. Yeah. So that wraps up. I can't say the actual name of the book anymore. The Lost Years of Merlin. That's how we knew it as children. Children. <laughs> it's 7.13 p.m. on a Thursday. I'm tired. It's been a week. It's dinner time. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much for listening. We had such a delight covering this episode, covering this book, making this episode. Thank you all so much. I hope you find the same joy in this book. We haven't picked our book for next month. I may just have to announce it on social media again. Yeah, let's do that. I, we have no idea. No. And I okay. gotta get home. Okay, so <laughs> pulling back the curtain here. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to do this two months in a row, but we'll announce it on social media um, within the next week. So y'all can prep for our next app. We'll have more coming soon. I know we only had one in June. Um, lots was happening, but life is getting more normal maybe someday. It's, you, yeah, it is like flexing back into that for sure. You can find us at dragonbabiespodcast.com, on Instagram at dragonbabiespodcast, and on Twitter at dragonbabiespod. And you can check out my Instagram where I post my art and pictures of my dog and sometimes weird funny stuff on my stories. Pig and Doodles, P-I-G-N-D-O-O-D-L-E-S. Pig and Doodles is my handle on Instagram. And we'll be back soon with more good damn fantasy fun. Yeah. I'm Grace. And I'm Madeline. Until next time. Goodbye.